You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reeds. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable read-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So I have to apologize if I sound a little different from normal. Today is the very last day of finals week, the official end of the semester, and I forgot my microphone at work, and I just cannot will myself to drive back and get it. (laughs) It's usually me who forgot got the microphone so I am fine (laughs) as long as it's not me (laughs) this is actually the only time I've ever done that so in three years three years plus one episode I'll forgive myself so at the end of the semester comes studio parties studio holiday celebrations how was yours Oh, it was so much fun. I promise my students every year that if one of the oboes wins a concerto competition, because we have a band one and an orchestra one at USM, that I will provide the studio with a pizza party. And lo and behold, luckily, fantastically, one of my students, Lilia, won uh, the band concerto competition. So she's going to get to play the first movement of the Legacy Concerto by Oscar Navarro uh, next semester. And so I owed them all pizza. So I had them over uh, last night and they ate pizza and played with my dog and I brought my cat out kicking and screaming for one second (laughs) and we played white (laughs) elephant and it was hilarious like the number one gift of the evening was from my student Ashley who is a gorgeous artist and she uh, painted uh, like an original Ashley Oboe painting. She's posted in the um, IDRS Facebook group before. She is so talented and these paintings are so beautiful. And she included like a small one as the gift. And the the student who who got it was like, I'm serious. Don't steal it. I'm serious. I am so serious. Be me. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone was too scared to steal it. So it never got stolen. It was so funny, but it was really beautiful. And I was like, you better frame it. She's like, I will. (laughs) Intimidation is a completely valid white elephant technique. It's a strategy. To utilize. (laughs) It was successful. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a studio party? I did. And it was kind of a new thing for us because in the past we've done the double read carols. And the place that we did it, 
shut down. And so we didn't really have a good venue. So we were kind of without a home for double read carols this year. And so I said, let's just have a studio party at my place instead. And they did, instead of white elephant, they did secret Santa and they drew names for each other. And so it was really uh, funny watching what they got. Like some of them were really thoughtful and like went to the other one's like girlfriend was like, what does he really want? And like got uh, some shocked faces like, oh my gosh, how did you know I wanted this thing? And then other like goofy gifts. So that was (laughs) hilarious. And I got all of my students a mug and I like based it off of either them or my relationship with them. And so um, I have a student who is from Chicago and I got her a mug with the Chicago skyline on it. And I have another student who's like extremely jovial and just like so happy and full of joy and I got her this like bright yellow mug with a huge smiley face on it and uh, just tried to like make everything you know personal and let them feel seen and whatnot so that that went over really well sweet I didn't even clean my house (laughs) I was like I'm getting hot and ready pizzas and you're gonna sit in my dirty house (laughs) to be fair I got them pizza too I did not I was like, it's either cheese or pepperoni. uh, We're not doing anything fancier. (laughs) Yeah. And then I was like, oh, it's Christmas. We should have some Christmas cookies. Oh, chips ahoy it is. I can hold this easy tab real easy. Eat up, kids. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's such a mood. (laughs) Listen, it is the end of the semester. We are all at our end of our rope. I cannot be... Making seven layer dip. <laughs> Much love to uh, all you bassoon teachers who can like roast a turkey for your students. I, it's it's Does not me. Do that. I sincerely want to know if somebody makes like actual food for their students. Oh, I'm sure there are people, people who do there. it. But, <laughs> yes. In fact, I'm sure there are people who are like horrified that. <laughs> Little Caesars and the dirty floor. Little Caesars and chips. (laughs) (laughs) We love you. You're amazing. Thank you for all your hard work. Here's a Little Caesars hot and ready. (laughs) (laughs) One of my students brought her Nintendo. I don't even know what it's called. Like I am not a gamer. I'm not into video games. Oh, I think it was a switch. Is that a thing? Is that a thing? I just, as someone is like screaming at their listening device of like what the Nintendo thing is called. And I'm sorry to those people. Oh yeah. I don't typically feel old, but she brought her Nintendo um, gaming unit that's new and was like basically Dr. Wilson I want to watch you try to do Mario Kart and because like they made some reference to Mario Kart that I didn't get and you could tell they were all like uh this is a really normal thing why don't you know about it and so they thought it would be like the most hilarious thing ever to try to teach me how to play Mario Kart. And so they brought the video games and had me play and laughed at me. And then when they'd had their fill, they were like, all right, hand it over and sat on my couch and played video games for a while. And I laughed at them. Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleuré of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. 
This wouldn't be a double read podcast if we didn't talk about knives and knife sharpening. Since day one, Genda Reed Knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest reed knives on the market, and Genda Industries has been a driving force in educating double reed players on how to sharpen and maintain their reed knives since it is the single most important tool in our reed making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full-size and travel-size sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go and will make your sharpening better. You've got a great reed knife and now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda Reed Knife Maintenance Kit, Reed Knife Sharpening Book, Cutting Block, and Reed Tool Roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. We are delighted and excited to welcome Catherine Young Steele, Principal Oboe of the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra, to Double Read Dish. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Could we start off by having you tell us how you came to play the oboe? Sure. My story um, begins with having great parents um, who actually were musicians or are currently still musicians themselves um, and having people who really recognized the the necessity and importance of taking music lessons so they they started me taking piano lessons uh, when I was about five years old from a person who um, became incredibly prolific in my life um, Mrs. Seely <laughs> who recently died and then I um, actually was able to be fortunate enough to be given her piano with some help with from my parents. But, um, but anyway, she started me on the piano and um, I took lessons pretty seriously. She was very um, rather, rather, rather demanding as far as having um, a young student. Um, and so I kind of got uh, equipped right away to handle some of that responsibility. Um, and then uh, when it came time to choose instruments in the fifth grade, um, my parents who were music teachers, my mom was a music teacher her entire career. She was also a flutist and um, was always teaching music lessons in my house. And my dad had been a high school band director up until the, about the time I was in the second or third grade and then um, switched careers and became an elementary school principal, went back to school and got a PhD in educational administration and then became um, a principal. And so he was always teaching lessons in my house too, even after he, he stopped being a band director. Um, and so I always had music happening in my house, whether it was myself playing the piano or my parents teaching flute lessons or, or trombone lessons or sometimes even tuba lessons in the basement, um, you know, plummeting up through the house. Uh, and so when it came time to choose an instrument, um, I really, really thought that my destiny was going to be the trumpet or the French horn. I really just felt that that was what commanded my attention. And I really fit, felt like I could, you know, hang with the guys and play a louder instrument. That was sort of my personality, I guess, at the time, and perhaps still is. <laughs> um, and so I, I went into the, the night where I uh, could choose an instrument from, from the, with the band director, um, thinking, first of all, number one, that I had already made my decision into a brass instrument. And secondly, that I knew everything I needed to know because my parents sort of raised me that way. And so um, and, and I had certainly had that on going on in my life for, for quite a number of years up until that point. And so, um, so I, I opened up the case of the trumpet and started to make a noise and it was absolutely awful and it hurt really badly in my mouth because my teeth at the time came to quite a, an angular triangular point. <laughs> and so <laughs> braces were very much in my future and 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 certainly um something that my parents were were planning on and so the people at the the band night 
who were probably, I think, representatives from different music stores in the area, um, they said, okay, you can take a trumpet home, but I'll let you take this trumpet home if you promise that you'll also take an oboe home. And I said, oh, okay, you know. So I, I come home and I'm like so excited about the trumpet and it's shiny and brass and it has three buttons that just move down so interestingly. <laughs> and I just thought this is great. And I opened that trumpet up again and it was not good. And I thought, well, this is not very fun. And so I said, oh, let me just see that oboe. And, um, you know, it had the, the fiber cane reed and the, you know, kind of menthol smelling uh, court grease Ugh. and I opened that case and, <laughs> and it um and it was something that I kind of still to this day remember thinking wow I can actually do this and I felt confident doing it because all of those years of my mom teaching flute lessons I was sitting on her lap scribbling in the books doing things trying to play that thing that flute myself and I think I could suddenly play the oboe a little bit because the fingerings were similar and I could kind mm -hmm. of I thought wow I'm I'm pretty good at this and so um now years later I've told this story many times and years later I I realized that my parents sort of planned this all out ahead of time for me they knew that something like the oboe would be better fitted for me and they wanted me to potentially be challenged by a different instrument more difficult instrument perhaps um, and so they had actually, because they were music teachers, they had obviously been very good friends with some of the local music store owners oh, and, and whatnot. And God. they had sort of planned this out. And it just so happened that the son of the local band owner, band shop owner, music store owner, Kaufman Music, his son was an oboe major at a, a university not too far from my house and then he became my first oboe teacher actually so i started studying you know right off the bat with this you know probably 19 or 20 year old kid named matt kaufman and um and he got me started even got me started on making reads at like the sixth grade level which was insane because my mother used to make me make the reads out on the picnic table in Ohio which because she didn't want the mess of the scrapings in her house little <laughs> did she know that would become her destiny for many years to come but um so I I, I have fond memories of, of kind of him showing me a knife and and a, a really really coarse sharpening stone with honing oil and going out to the kit, you know, to the picnic table and, and working on reeds, which was far too young and certainly didn't have any business doing that. Um, but soon, soon after sort of working with him, getting me started on some basic technique things, he realized that I was worth um, finding a real teacher who could actually take me through the steps. And so through, through him and also through my parents who had attended um, Ohio University themselves in Athens, Ohio, they had made some calls and, and talked to the oboe teacher at Ohio University who was a new teacher herself. Um, and that person was Donna Conady. And so, um, and, and she is um, basically solely responsible for turning me into this sort of rugged kid into the, the person that was able to to audition for for music schools later on um and so I did weekly lessons with her um my parents drove me one hour each way <clears throat> through the Hocking Hills of Central and Southern Ohio to Athens from my house in in Lancaster and um each week I met with her and she was just absolutely um instrumental for lack of a better pun, <laughs> um, in, in getting me um, squared away with all of the appropriate um, techniques and things having to do with the body and breathing and just, you know, she started me over and really got me groomed. Um, and, and she did it somewhat reluctantly at first. I think she was thinking, oh, I'm a new teacher. I'm, I'm, I've got this new college studio and um, I'm not sure if I'm really interested in teaching a younger student, but she did say that if I was willing and, and able, I, she would be happy to do it. And 
we just kind of clicked and it was an amazing, um, amazing journey for me as a, as a youngster because she was so patient and so, um, so encouraging, but also extremely challenging at the same time. And so it was very, um, I was very fortunate to have found her um, at that particular time. Um, and so I did, I did all of the typical high school stuff um, with her help. And then I um, also, by the way, maintained a really serious piano study all the way through high school as well. So I always had two lessons every week and sometimes youth orchestra and all the other stuff that high school students are doing. And then um, she, Donna, uh, told my parents that she thought it would be worth um, thinking about auditioning for places like Eastman, you know, kind of guided me into having dream schools sort of schools that were pretty attainable and then sort of kind of you know pretty confident places that I could could get accepted into and so she encouraged my parents to let me apply to Eastman and um then I did essentially and um and got accepted and and started at the Eastman School of Music with Richard Kilmer where that kind of you know formed my my training further obviously and and also in some ways started my life over again as a young music student because that was really an unbelievable place to go um first of all because of being in his his you know esteemed studio under his his guidance but also to be surrounded by not only oboe players um who were my peers at the you know at that point, but also just phenomenally um, open-minded, well-rounded musicians on all, you know, on all instruments. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 uh, I was one of those um, fortunate students that, that was accepted. And um, some of those oboe players in that studio are, are, are my lifelong friends to this day. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm fortunate, and I should say, I guess I'm glad that I was one of those Eastman oboe players at the time. Um, and then my parents also um, really wanted me to get a degree in music education as well. So I actually um, auditioned as a performance major at Eastman, and really it was important to me that I could feel like I was going to be good enough to get in to Eastman as a performer. Um, because I felt like that was, you know, a conservatory. It was something that was really important to me. I didn't want to be in the the oboe studio as solely an education major. So I actually added music ed um, by doing an interview over the phone with some of the music ed professors at Eastman, and they um, they heard some some of my story and they knew that um, teaching was something that was in my blood and certainly something that I was passionate about doing. Um, sort of in conjunction in, in conjunction with with performing, and so um, I also completed an education degree there as well. Um, so again, that was something that really surrounded me with really interesting viewpoints on education and teaching, and sort of techniques that I I feel are really vital to the way I teach currently um, now and. And certainly um, exposed me to some excellent experiences that I'm forever thankful for, and and so I'm I'm pro oboe performance and I'm pro music ed <laughs> every step of the way. And actually, for me, I also sort of by accident realized that Richard Kilmer was so himself passionate about music education because that was something that he did as well. I mean, he taught public school strings. For, for many years mm -hmm. before deciding to really become an oboe player. Um, and so he really relished the fact that I was interested in that. And um, he, he made it very easy for me to feel like I was able to do both things and never once made me feel like I was lesser because I decided that I wanted to focus also on music education. Mm -hmm. So, um, which obviously is, is a huge um, plus and benefit to be studying with a teacher that feels that that type of difference can can be made um, in the field of education and so um, that's 
that's been something that I've tried to continue through my career, my life, and also into my teaching as well. So, um, so that was, that was my Eastman time. And then, um, as I was finishing my four years at Eastman, you know, Mr. Kilmer and I would have discussions about what the next steps should be. And I, I, at that point had been accepted to a few summer festivals and sort of had been made to feel like my sort of um, playing was, was on par with some of the other um, students my age from other conservatories and, and big schools like Juilliard and, and, Curtis in New England and places like that. So um, he he had sort of thought, you know, I think graduate school would be a great place for you to go. And so I, um, long story short, basically I decided to go to Rice um, because I had been told that the orchestral training program at Rice was was really just absolutely out of this world um, and really important um, in training students who really felt like orchestra was where they wanted to end up and so luckily I was accepted to Rice and um, and then moved to Houston and began studying with Robert Atherholt um, and then and then um, finished at Rice after two wonderful years and having wonderful um, influences from lots of different professors there as well as Larry Ratcliffe the orchestra conductor um, and then sort of um, out of the blue, I took an audition for the New World Symphony and got in <laughs> and um, was certainly not expecting that and, um, and just kind of was actually preparing at the same time as those auditions for New World and Civic and, and things like that. I was preparing to have to maybe continue into school and take, um, take doctoral exams and whatnot, but um, luckily I was, one of the people chosen to go to the New World Symphony in Miami, um, which of course then was a tremendous uh, opportunity that allowed for me to really focus on my own playing, on taking auditions and just really get into the zone of playing in an orchestra. And so for about four years in Miami, that was my my mission and um and luckily it worked out and i got my first job in the florida orchestra um in the tampa bay area of florida right after i was technically finished at new world so um so that's my long journey <laughs> <laughs> i relate so much to so many of the things you said especially having janky teeth pre-braces <laughs> And that's so funny that your parents like tricked you into playing the oboe. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's a very unique story. And I'm, you know, my parents are really, um, you know, they, they, I think they just, as a flutist and a trombonist, they thought, well, you know, she's ready to do something maybe a little bit different. And so I played the oboe and my sister younger, uh, three years younger than me, she played the French horn. And so uh, they got their wish. <laughs> it's a good combo. Oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I would love to hear more about your experience in New World Symphony. It's such a special program. And I would love to hear in more detail what you got out of that program and specifically what helped you in the audition process. Sure. Well, New World is a really unbelievable place and we often refer to it as sort of like musical utopia because you're given really unbelievable experiences you know they have a tremendous budget to do really um really prolific things and I think first of all Michael Clifton Thomas who I believe to be one of the the geniuses so to speak of the classical music world he's extremely innovative he has a lot of very wonderful ideas that are often very cutting edge um you know he he has somewhat of a free reign in a sense to um to get some of those projects done back when i was there there was not um the the new fancy concert hall in fact they were um working on trying to get some of the land grants and permission and through city hall and stuff like that um while i was there 
and I was um, actually, I remember going to some of those city hall meetings and sort of rallying to let us have that, that opportunity to build that amazing venue. Um, but when I was there, it was, it was a really um, great place to, to try things and fail. And I mean, I think that, that came from the top. I mean, Michael Sister Thomas was able to, to try things and certain things would work and certain things wouldn't. Um, but we were, first of all, we were surrounded by, you know, the top students, you know, theoretically um, in the country at the time. And we were, you know, that, that, that does something to your, to your sort of psyche and your mindset. And it tells you that, you know, you're here for three or four years, you really need to immerse yourself in these opportunities and play with the best people and try things and just sort of focus on you know allowing yourself to meld and grow and and figure out a way to to make sense of this sort of utopian environment where you're you know living on south beach and you're playing with phenomenal um conductors and you're playing with with you know two other oboists but not only two other oboists but you know, an entire orchestra of people that are at the top of their game, all preparing simultaneously together for auditions. And I think one of the things that was good and sort of bad about it at the same time was that you would see, for example, like a clarinetist going to take an audition and you would think, oh my gosh, that's amazing. He, you know, and he would come back or he or she would come back and talk about their experiences and of the audition and, and, um, and, and then you would think, okay, this is how it's going to go for me next time, you know, when it's my turn and da, 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 da. And so there was just this, this experience of talking about auditions constantly, you know, mm -hmm. we would all live together, we were all living together in these old Art Deco hotels that had been converted into apartments for us, obviously. And um, so we were all living together and, you know, we would be hanging out by the pool or whatever, going to the beach or just, you know, even at Starbucks, we would, the auditions were just the absolute number one talking point. And so you became very much in, involved, so to speak, in auditions and the ways that committees, you know, seemed to, to respond to certain things in auditions and, um, and, and, and that. And so the negative was, was that, okay, even if it wasn't an oboe audition, you felt this sort of anxiety about, oh gosh, this is flute or this is, you know, bassoon and he just won a job or she just won a job and, and this is happening. And, and you just kind of have this feeling of like, oh my gosh, is this going to happen to me? You know, am I going to be one of these people? Does, am I going to be the next person to come back from an audition having won a job? And so um, I think I had to sort of learn to cope with that adrenaline and that anxiety a little bit and, and, and make myself focus and center into that zone of like, okay, if I can't do this, if this doesn't work out for me by the time I'm out of here, my, my time is up here um, because it's a limited um, it's a, it's a limited three, three, sometimes four year program, um, then I need to have plan B and I need to figure out what I'm going to be happy doing if this job, you know, search slash audition path doesn't work out. And so um, I was, I was able to kind of do that. And I'm sort of just always been equipped to being okay with however things turn out because of how hard I, I try to work, at, you know, daily. And so, um, I, I was in the position, you know, a lot of times during that New World um, experience for me, there were several auditions. There were lots of big auditions that had happened for the oboe during that time. Lots of English horn jobs, lots of second jobs, lots of first oboe jobs. That was sort of the, the um, you know, mid-2000s where some of that was really going on and lots of changing in, 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 in the, in the oboe world was, was happening. And so there were a lot of auditions to take um, and each one of those experiences obviously, you know, helped me grow um, and some were a total waste of money and some <laughs> were, were furthermore, um, furthermore important in my, um, in my journey and understanding of how that all was going to work out. But um, luckily I was able to win a job uh, in the Florida orchestra 
um, about the midpoint of my fourth year, I was awarded an extra fourth year. Um, and then I was able to, to do that. Um, and so it, it, but you know, it, it's a grueling, it's a grueling place, um, but one that is also extraordinarily rewarding. I got to go to, to Rome, Italy with, with the orchestra while I was there and, and played a couple of really wonderful concerts there. And then we also got to go to Carnegie Hall a couple of different times. So those are experiences that um, were really, really terrific for, for a young person. And to be honest with you, um, a young person that didn't even really 100% know that this was what I was meant to do, you know, like, like the orchestra path was, was still kind of finding its way for me. And so, um, but it, it gave me, you know, continue, continued to give me more exposure to, to people and to experiences that, that helped sort of lock into place what, what I was really destined, I guess, to be <laughs> as a professional. So, uh, kind of related, could you talk to us about the process of preparing and auditioning for and winning your position in the Milwaukee Symphony? Well, I was in the Florida Orchestra for about six seasons, and each year I was in the orchestra, um, you know, it was a tremendously wonderful first job for me. I, first of all, was really lucky that I had friends who were also young and starting out their careers. Some of them had come over from New World with me at the same time. Actually, Anthony Georgeson, who's now associate principal bassoon in Atlanta, he and I were there together as principal bassoon and principal oboe in Florida. And, and we, we had some really great um, young people. Andrea Overturf, the now English harness in San Diego, she was also there. We were kind of all joining the ranks at the same time. And so um, Florida Orchestra, for for a lot of that time just felt like an extension somewhat of new world um and and i was really liking it a lot there but i was um i was unfortunately part of a, a time period in that orchestra where things were really turning south financially um each year and actually the first year that or first my first week on the job there when i had just moved everything from miami and my parents had helped me do all of that. My first um, day on the job was actually a meeting of the union to try to decide whether or not they should strike or not. So it was not, it was very scary. I remember walking out of the meeting, calling my parents crying, saying, what am I doing? What did I just do? I moved here and now they're going to go on strike. And they didn't go on strike eventually, but um, they, they did, um, you know, it was clear that things financially were changing and I had a pay cut every year for six years mm -hmm. primarily, um, which was really scary. And, um, and so I kept taking auditions, um, for, for the majority of that six years, just knowing that I can't rely on staying here, um, because this is not going to be financially, you know, viable after a while. Um, and so, uh, re um, in that time, I also, you know, was inching closer to 30. And um, I also met my now husband, who had actually moved back to the Tampa Bay area from, from North Carolina to, to pursue um, a master's degree in business. And he, because he, he himself has a degree in trumpet, um, but, but became involved in medical sales <laughs> through, mm -hmm. through a very bizarre way. But anyway, um, so he ended up, um, we, we met after a concert actually of my orchestra and um, we became more serious and we, we were very, very um, happy and he is a native of that area. So we thought, okay, I said, okay, I can live with this job even if um, things go south, I'll do something else. I can teach, I can do, you know, a variety of different things having to do with music and I'll be happy. But um, he actually, my husband, um, encouraged me to continue to do this. And so I actually got a call about six weeks before our wedding and from the personnel manager of the Milwaukee Symphony asking me if I would come and play a week um, because somehow I had taken an audition for another orchestra and one of the musicians of the Milwaukee Symphony had heard that audition. They had been on the committee for that and remembered me. Um, and so they, they had just sort of known of 
of my name. And so they asked if I would come and play a week. And so um, I did and I accepted and I actually had been, I had been to Milwaukee about the year prior um, when they had their first audition for the, for the principal oboe position after um, their longtime principal oboist had retired. Um, but that audition yielded in, in a no hire. Um, and so they, they asked me if I'd come and sub for a week. I, I came and played, I think it was Enigma Variations and the Planets. Mm-hmm. And um, it was Thanksgiving week, I remember that. So it's actually about eight years ago, maybe to this day, maybe nine, wow. nine eight years ago, this week, actually. Um, and I went and played the week and I thought, oh, it's, it's actually going very well. And, um, you know, I was thinking this is fantastic, but I'm not going to worry about it because I'm just focused on getting married. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. really care, you know, what happens, but it's a fun week. It's, it makes me feel good that people are responding well to my playing and it feels like a great fit, you know, but, but I'm not going to worry about it. So, um, I remember even like that week showing while I was playing, <laughs> showing the wind section, like my wedding dress and certain things about my wedding. I was really not focused on the oboe at that point. Um, <laughs> but, but then, um, you know, my husband, my, my, my fiance, I guess at the time was like, really, you know, you really need to think about doing this. He was extraordinarily supportive, even though he knew, you know, he knew the possibilities of if he was going to encourage me to get another job, that that would mean he would be moving away, obviously from, from his family. But um, later in January of, of uh, 2012, there was the audition for Milwaukee and, and I, I showed up actually was quite, I remember that the weather was terrible that day. It was a January audition in Milwaukee, which, you know, meant probably sub-zero temperatures and some serious precipitation. And I remember my (laughs) flight being significantly delayed and I'm sitting in the airport calling the personal manager saying, I'm late, I'm late. He's like, don't worry, just get here when you get here. And um, I think because I had played a week I was advanced into the semifinals or, or, or something of that nature. And then, um, I played about four rounds with, um, the, the audition. And, and I think the last two rounds I played some excerpts with the orchestra wind section. Um, and then at the end of a very long day, they, um, they told me that I was the winner. Um, but the preparation for, for that audition, you know, was, no different really than any audition except for the fact that um I really didn't expect anything you know like I said I had just gotten married I had I had really come to terms with the fact that I could be happy doing really whatever I wanted to do and if that meant staying in an orchestra that financially was was you know in in some sort of of instability, then I would be okay with that because I was happy and I could teach and I could continue to make a living in any way that I could. So I, I know that a lot of players, you know, have a, a a path that they cannot accept anything beyond winning the job, you know, or that's their goal. That's their, that's their thing. And of course that was my goal was to get a better job, but I certainly did not expect that, um, that was going to be something that I could control. And to be honest with you, that's just been the way my, my focus on auditions has always been that like, okay, if I'm, if I'm the one standing at the end and I play the way that I mean to play and that I'm happy with playing myself, then, then, you know, the right opportunity will come along. And that's basically, uh, what, what led me to Milwaukee and, and, um, and so I, I feel like the more comfortable I feel with my own, you know, package, my own standard, my own representation of myself as a player, the more confident I am with that, the better the results seem to be for me. I love that perspective um, because uh, when we interviewed Alan Vogel, he said, you have the right to the work, but not to the result. So it's a very similar idea of put your effort into the work and let the results happen the way they're going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm very lucky. I said at the beginning, you know, my parents were really good 
for me in terms of this career because first of all they never said no to anything you know when my when when my teacher donna would ask them to buy me something they always made it happen they always got me where i needed to go they they never said no they always you know encouraged me sometimes forced me to practice and they always <laughs> did that and i think it's a large part of because each of my parents were were driven that way from their own families i mean my my dad's family came um was was either a hundred percent farmer in the rural areas of Ohio or a teacher. And so there was a lot of really hard work, very hard work. Um, sometimes I can't even imagine how hard work they did. You know, they had to, they had to do in order to survive. And, um, and my dad is now retired uh, principal, but he often writes books about the the determination and grit that you must have in order to survive in any in any field. Um, and my mom was was the daughter of an engineer, you know, who really was scientific and working really hard at the nitty gritty and the details of all of those types of things. And so, I got a real sense early on about how hard I had to work. And to be honest with you, that's what's guided me through my career. Not about focusing on one thing, one outcome, but just if I, I knew that if I worked really hard in whatever I wanted to do, whether it's making reads or practicing or teaching or whatever, I could figure out a way to be okay at the end. Um, and And I think sometimes people, have a different philosophy on that but I I always was was very and that's the only thing I could rely on was how hard I worked. Speaking of working hard you are a principal in a major orchestra you teach and mm -hmm. you are a wife and a mother and <laughs> I would love to hear more about your balance between all of these important um, aspects of your life because it seems like when you are in charge of little people uh, the sense of responsibility is probably really intense you know your responsibility to making sure that your kids are happy and healthy and that you have a happy and healthy marriage and that your job is going well and I just love to hear your perspective on that sure I I think First of all, being a mom is the best thing that I've ever done in my life, but it's also made me a much better oboe player. It's made me a much better teacher. And I think that it's really, really amazing how all of these things sort of meld together. Um, you know, I used to be the kind of person that would make a bunch of reads and then look at my reads and I would look at the openings and I would stare at them <laughs> try them after one hour and see what happened and you know I would do all of this ridiculous you know sort of you know micro microscopic work and that just simply is out the window <laughs> completely um you know and I remember hearing one of my friends at Rice used to tell me that when he studied with Alex Klein you know Alex would make like two or three reads a week and that would be whatever he used um well that's totally what I'm doing right now I mean I I make a couple more than maybe two reads a week but um I I have really tried to figure out a way that that the that to make the system work um and so ultimately um it's it's forced me to be really efficient. You know, I have a friend that says, you know, I can accomplish now things in five minutes that would have taken me five hours to do prior to having kids. Um, and that's completely true. Um, you know, so I spend a very short amount of time kind of making reads for the week. And then those are reads that I can fix at the hall during, during rehearsals and whatnot. Um, or I can sort of do a little polishing up during a student's lesson. And um, that's what gets me by. I have an incredibly limited amount of reads at some times, and it's sometimes a little bit precarious. But um, generally speaking, I that's, that's a system that works for me. And it kind of, if I have extra time, or if my kids are taking a nap, or they're at school or something like that, I can, I can get a little bit more work done. But like I said, I'm much, I'm, it's forced me to be much more equipped in dealing with the details of my of of my reads and also of practicing um they they actually 
um, asked me to play the Strauss Concerto uh, here in Milwaukee with, at the time, our music director, Edo DeVart, um, a couple of years ago. And uh, the, the artistic uh, administrator called me on the phone and he said, you know, Katie, you really like if you would do the Strauss with Edo. And, you know, Edo himself was an oboist uh, from the Concertgebouw. And so uh, I said, oh my gosh, this is an amazing opportunity and I can't wait to do it. However, I'm just about to announce that I'm pregnant for my first baby. <laughs> and I don't know if this is going to be possible. I have never had a baby before. I don't know. I've also never played the Strauss Concerto with an orchestra before. And I said, you know, I I thought about it for about two seconds in my head and I'm thinking, okay, I have to say yes, because I'll never have this opportunity. Ado will not be around here in Milwaukee forever. And I want to do this piece with him and I don't want to say no, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that generally says no to things like that. And so I, um, I said yes. And, and, and I, so I played the Strauss with the orchestra after my, when my, my first baby was five months old, um, <laughs> which wow. now that I think about it was kind of, ridiculous um and I thought wow this is you know this is very unique opportunity in a lot of different ways I was like pumping you know m milk right before I was about to go out on stage and, and it's just you know like this is just my, the way my life is but obviously it 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 worked out and it it's the kind of thing where I can't imagine my life in any 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 other way I see people in my orchestra who don't have children or who who have less things to to worry about um in terms of the day-to-day -day things that I do um and so I I think I I envy them in a way but I also um am very glad that it's forced me to really get my you know my my act together so to speak and be very efficient because then I can say to one of my students you know you have five minutes after swim practice before you've got to start your homework before you want to hang out with your friends if I have five minutes you have five minutes. Mm -hmm. You can do this. You can practice this passage from, you know, the Fairling or the Barrett or whatever, and you can put a little, you know, bow on it before you go out and do these things, and then you'll be able to to go on, you know, and 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 make some progress yourself. So, um, so in a way, you know, motherhood has really um, helped me be able to do some of those things more efficiently more cleanly and um, certainly more uh, succinctly to help other students. Can you tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance that sticks out in your mind? Oh yeah, I mean, there are a lot of them. Um, we actually just had one a few months ago here. Um, we have a new music director, Ken David Mazur, who's terrific and he just started in the fall with us. Um, one of his first programs, if not the first actually, was um, the Rosen Cavalier Suite uh, of Strauss, which, uh, you know, I think for any oboe player is one of the most enjoyable mm -hmm. um, pieces. It's just so luxurious. It's like wrapping yourself up in a big piece of really rich silk or, or a beautiful perfume or something like that. It's just mm -hmm. really um, indulgent <laughs> in a way. Um, and so that, that's been one of my uh, most recent fond memories. But you know, there's been there's been many. Obviously, uh, the Strauss performances with Ado have have to be on the top of my list as well. You know, he was so generous as an oboist. You know, he he knew every instinct that I was going to have, and musically speaking, regardless of being an oboist, he was just so responsive and helpful to me in that process, and really guided me throughout that whole experience um being a little timid and also a little getting my sea legs back after having had a baby um but also you know a lot of concerts we did with Ado during his time here were were really standouts you know his final concert was Mahler's third and I think for me anytime I get to play a Mahler symphony is a really special occasion um but but certainly that piece and the magnitude of that piece and the demands that I have as an individual as part of that piece, you know, playing first oboe on that piece is, is also extraordinarily, you know, meticulous and challenging at times. And so um, navigating something like that, being part of, of a journey like that, seeing a, a man of such an esteemed, um, you know, reputation as Edo 
um, seeing the end of his time in Milwaukee was very special. Um, but, you know, there's been times I can remember, you know, from 20 years ago playing with friends of mine at Eastman that I, that I recall as being standout performances too. So um, I think it's, 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 uh, it's fun to have standout moments, but it's also um, really important to be in the moment and find that this is, you know, when you're, when you're approaching the next piece or the next concert, you think, okay, this is going to be it. You know what I mean? I'm going to put everything I have into this moment and make it really a special, a special time. So I, I sort of have both of those in my life, fortunately. So <laughs> what advice would you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? First of all, I think the most important thing to do is to realize that you're going to be beaten down a lot. And the nature of being an artist is to be able to endure that kind of, of negativity. Um, and I think you have to work really hard to make yourself surrounded by people who can empower you, who can help you thrive during those difficult times. But also, um, you know, making sure that you never underestimate your ability to work hard. And, you know, you, you've got to put yourself in a position where you can really have no other distractions and, and really think about how you want to get from point A to point B to make this, this piece or this excerpt or this etude sound better the next day. You know, I tell my young students and my college students to never go into a practice session without a plan because a lot of times, you know, kids, and I was one of them, you know, at the age of nine, I was told my parents, you know, would never let me go outside and play with my friends or do this or that, go to the movies or whatnot, unless I practiced. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> what does mm -hmm. that mean to just go in and practice? Okay, I'll sit in a room and I'll play this thing for, for 30 minutes or until the timer is literally mm -hmm. up. Um, but I think that I had to be, because, because I was encouraged to do that, I had to figure out a way in college, especially after that, to figure out what I was going to do with that time and how I was going to make it good. And so the advice I guess I would give a young student is just figure out how to do that as early as you possibly can so that practicing is never a chore, but it's actually an experience of something that goes from one thing to the other and that you feel like by the end of a practice session even if it's only five minutes you've accomplished something mm -hmm. um because I think kids are 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 you know they're they're practicing is an enigma to a lot of people and they don't understand how to really make it productive and um I think that that's that's the most important thing to understand about practicing is that that's the only way you're going to get better but you cannot just do it to do it you have to do it to make progress and you have to be able to be self-critical enough to know how that progress is is you know happening and you have to be able to evaluate yourself each and every time you play what has changed what is not changing what needs to you know etc and um and that's something that's really important i think i think a lot of students have a terrifically difficult time um, evaluating their own performances mm -hmm. and or their own practice. I hate listening to recordings of myself, but I'm, my husband actually loves listening to recordings and he forces me to go online. You know, the Milwaukee Symphony allows us to, to listen to our own recordings on our, our, our little musician portal. And he forces me like sometimes even the night of the concert, he'll go on to that portal and be listening to something or whatnot. And it forces me to listen. I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't do it. You know? <laughs> um, but that's really important. And students these days, you know, it's so easy for them to just mm -hmm. pick up their phone, turn on a recording, you know, it doesn't have to sound good. It's not going to be, you know, a, a, a world, you know, renowned recording, but it's just something that you can have privately to, to analyze yourself. And you don't have to analyze it that night. You can analyze it two or three days from then or, mm -hmm. or a week from then, but it's important to have a document because to be honest with you, until you hear it, it doesn't change and, and the progress doesn't happen. And uh, so that self-evaluation, I think, is really, is really key 
into to making efficient and fast progress. Catherine, thank you so, so much for talking with us on Double Read Dish. We really had a wonderful time speaking with you. Oh, thank you so much. I think what you guys are doing and getting everyone to to collaborate on this type of a project, I think is fantastic. And I hope it helps a lot of a lot of people. It's certainly been fun for me to listen to other to other people as well. That's awesome. (laughs) We hope you loved that interview as much as we did. As always, you can find us on all of the social media platforms. You can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and I think anywhere you can find your podcasts. Um, we love hearing from you. So if you have a comment or a question, please feel free to email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com. Jackie, who do we have coming up next on the podcast? We will be kicking off 2020 with Ann Bilderback, principal bassoonist of the Kansas City Symphony. And Luna is so excited for she it. She is so excited. <laughs> Jackie, time to end this. All right. Go make reads. <laughs>